On Saturday, November 2nd, 1996, at a little after midnight, soul, blues, and folk singer Eva Cassidy died of melanoma cancer at the age of 33. During her brief life, the painfully shy Eva performed in relative obscurity. After her death, her masterful interpretations of songs from multiple musical genres garnered her posthumous worldwide fame the main thing she shunned during her lifetime. Ah, here we go. <laughs> it's working. Go, go, it's go. done, done, done. Never to walk. That's all you got. In anyone's shadows. Okay, oh, I know. wrong episode. Wrong episode, dang it. All right, we are here for a special rock of eyes. We're doing it. We're doing it. And the person that told me to do this rockabye is an angel because, like Eva, Eva Cassidy is an angel, but you're an angel too, Ryan, because you told me to do it. I love her. I love you. Thank you. I love you too. So I have spent my guests tonight are, what's your name? We're at Rockabye's. It's all good. And this one's on Eva Cassidy. This is Ryan. And this is Josh. And Ryan and I were out to lunch one day, and Ryan says to me, Melissa, why don't you do Eva Cassidy? If you do Eva Cassidy, I'll come over with Josh and do it with you. And I thought, well, I mean, it kind of like was like, mm, okay. I didn't know that much about her. I didn't know how, like, incredible her voice was. Like, I didn't, like in the peripheral, mm -hmm. seen her from afar, but not really given Eva a chance. And I'm glad that you told me what you told me. Thank I'm glad you. I got to share her with you. Yes, yes. Well, now I've shared her with everybody. Now she, her, her love is being spread everywhere right now. Good. Because I have everybody, you know, um, being exposed to her voice and just her amazingness. So I can't wait to actually start out with Ryan and tell him stuff that he never knew. I played songs for you. Yeah, I heard a few songs just a few minutes ago. I never knew she sang. Yes. Um, being a huge fan, I feel like I had heard every song of hers, but really? there were some that I had never heard. Tell the audience how you came across Eva Cassidy. So it was probably like 1990, oh gosh, 98, 97, mm -hmm. um, when I first heard her. A friend of mine shared a song with me. I remember I remember where we were. I think we were in Diamond Bar, California, mm -hmm. Yeah. in his parents' house, mm -hmm. uh, and he had heard this voice, and he was like, you're going to love this voice, because of course I'm a fan of like Whitney and... Um, Aretha like and I like oh, soul. Like, oh yes, then you. And when I heard this voice, my mind was blown. And I want to say it was the first song, and I could be wrong. Was Field of Dreams, mm -hmm. um, Field of Gold, Field of Gold. I mean, mm -hmm. um, and if you build it, it will come. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Not that one. Um, and I think that was the first song I heard. And then from there, I just went into the rabbit hole and just started going to every record store I could to see wow. if anyone could find these albums that were produced based on her live performances yeah. back at Blues Alley. Yeah. Do you have the vinyl albums of hers? No, CDs. 
You have CDs. That's I have awesome. CDs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm sure the vinyls. This is been. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. I mean, it was way before digital. You know. Yeah. Where you could find it online. Right. So you were digging around wow. for this music. Did you find it easily? No, it was difficult. Wow. Yeah, to find the songs. Um, and you, they would just, I, I feel like the family was like, and I could be making this up, but somebody was just releasing these live uh, recordings of her on disc. I got answers for you, my okay. friend. There's going to be, you And they would slowly re- like release more music, mm-hmm. more music, mm-hmm. more music. Like unraveling. In the late 90s, early, uh, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And I would just wait for more music, more music. To wow. Come out. How yeah. would you know did it come out? Just constantly searching. Mm. I would uh, go to Amoeba and ask Amoeba, the Mm. the customer service at Amoeba in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. like, do you have any more Ava Cassidy music? Uh, Things like that. And the The internet was out, so I'd started searching for, like, on the internet. internet. The internet was out. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) It was. I mean, they'd rolled that out, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the irony is that how you came about her. Yeah. And fell in love with her, you're gonna see is practically like the whole world. Really? Yes. It was like you were it, you were at the right place at the right time, so to speak, along with the rest of the world. Um but normally at the beginning of my rockabies, I try and find something that kind of encapsulates their life. Like I have a beginning quote. Yeah. And my beginning quote, and I want to say for Sam Cooke, because I know you love Sam Cooke, Josh. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know what I was saying, but I gave like two um, quotes, and one of them was about from Pablo Picasso, and one of them was from Mr. Rogers. Mm -hmm. I love Mr. Rogers. And Mr. I know. I saw that documentary last, you know, that they did from last year, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Yeah. That is all butterflies and sunshine. He's good people. He was amazing. He was an angel. Yeah. He was an angel, but this one actually isn't Mr. Rogers or Pablo Picasso. It's a woman who said this. And she said, and this will make me think about Eva when I, when I looked for the right quote for her. And it was, some people say I was very brave, but I really just didn't know any better. All I had was my originality. And when I saw this person who said this, it's actually one of a person that Eva really admired. And we'll talk a little bit more about her. But her name was Buffy St. Marie. Do you know who she is? No, tell me. She's a Canadian Cree Indian woman. And you know what she got? She's the only Cree Indian woman to win an Oscar. And she wrote, co-wrote uh, Where We Belong for, for Officer and a Gentleman. Oh. oh, wow. But she had other stuff that Eva Cassidy loved. And we'll talk about it. So if we're going to start right out with it. You know, Eva Marie Cassidy was born on February 2nd, 1963 at 10 p.m. And now, by the way, anything you want to add in, add in whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, what you think about things, yeah, yeah. some of her songs or whatever, yeah, yeah, her voice, do go for it. So Eva Marie Cassidy was born on February 2nd, 1963 at 10 p.m. in Washington, D.C. to Hugh and Barbara Cassidy. Her first name was taken from Hugh's grandmother, Eva McGrew, a Christian singer and guitar player, which was what Eva turned out to be. Mm-hmm. She had two older sisters, Annette and Margaret, and one younger brother, Dan, who was a year younger than Eva. Eva's mom is German, and the neighbors gave her the nickname Sunshine. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When she was a little baby. 
Her dad, Hugh, worked as a special education teacher in an elementary school while Barbara was a stay-at-home mom. And people don't know this, but Hugh had a passion for powerlifting. Interesting. It's a unique passion back in I the 60s. Yes. Yeah. He, was, he was American, but he went to Germany. That's how he met her mom. And then the mom had always wanted to come to America. So they all came back and settled in Washington, D.C. But he had a power, he was a power lifter. Wow. On the side, he competed as a power lifter. And as a semi, he was also a semi-professional musician. Oh, wow. Who had regular gigs around town. Interesting. So at two years old, Eva started drawing um, that demonstrated that she had a lot of talent. She was an artist. I don't know if you know this. Mm-mm. She's a big artist. And we'll see more. But she attended Owens Road Elementary, which was just across the street from her house. And on the weekends, her mom took her and her siblings to the Smithsonian Museum, which fed her artistic side. She loved the artwork of Claude Monet, Van Gogh, your boy. Of course, my favorite. Your boy. By the way, who do you like from Van Gogh? Do you like Starry Night? Do you like... I like all of it. All wow, of his I never knew you liked Van Gogh. Oh, yeah. Mm. Wow. You learned something new about mm. you. Obsessed. I'm obsessed with him and his art. Really? Yeah. Why? And his story. And, and his story. story. Everything. I went to Giverny <clears throat> and um, Auvers, and when I went to Giverny to see... Claude Monet's house, it was like, oh, this is beautiful. And then I went to Auvergne to see where Van Gogh was. Yeah. Blown away. Was it a shack? It is a shack. And he, everything he painted is right there in this one town, Auvergne. You have to go. Really? It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know he lived in a... I mean, it felt like he lived He's in a shack. Spartan, he, right? Very simple life. But all the famous paintings are there. Why he cut off his ear? I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean... Did he really cut off his ear? Yeah, I think so. But I think... I feel like... Was he I mad? Think, was I he think mad? he got, from what I understand, I could be wrong. I think he got syphilis, and at the late stages of syphilis, mm-hmm. you go a little crazy. Al and Capone. I think, yeah, and I think in those late stages, you know, yeah. things happen. Was he straight? I don't know. I've read the book. I've read his letters to his brother. Mm-hmm. He had a very close relationship, conflicted relationship with his brother. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Theo. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how that came. The cemetery's right there. Oh, he he was by a cemetery? In Auvergne. That's depressing. Um, the church, the famous church that he painted, you know, you mm-hmm. know that church? Mm-hmm. The reason why he painted it is because streets. there's no, the, the, the angle he painted at, there's no front door. He never felt like religion had an easy access to it. Ooh, that's deep. Mm-hmm. That's deep. Yeah. How many paintings did he did in his I life? don't know. It was a lot. A lot. Very prolific. prolific. Mm-hmm. Damn. Well, this has been art history. Yeah. I know. Thank you for that. See, we need we need to veer off on good stuff like that. Exactly. So, and the Dutch masters, and at the e- end of each visit, Barbara allowed the kids to choose a postcard of their favorite artwork, and she would always choose the Dutch masters. Eva loved listening to the Canadian Cree Indian singer, Buffy St. Marie, especially her song, I'm Going to Be a Country Girl Again. Mm. The moment she saw a photograph of St. Marie in front of a microphone and wearing headphones, she realized she wanted to be a singer. Interesting. Buffy St. Marie is an indigenous Canadian singer-songwriter, social activist, and Oscar-winning composer. In 1983, her song, Up Where We Belong, co-written for the film An Officer and a Gentleman, won Best Original Song at both the Academy Awards and the Golden Globe Awards making Buffy the first indigenous person to win. 
Buffy has won recognition, multiple awards and honors for her music as well as her work in education and social activism. In addition, Buffy also performed for many years on Sesame Street. Hugh's other passion was music. He was proficient on an upright bass, electric bass guitar, acoustic guitar, and a mandolin. Wow. Yeah, and when relatives visited the Cassidy home, especially at Christmas, Hugh and the kids would give musical performances. Oh, I love that. Yeah, during practice, though, Hugh would begin to, like, train Eva's musical ear further by saying, and now in a different key, Eva. Oh, wow. oh, that's great. He would start with her. In 1972, the family moved to a larger house in Bowie, Maryland, which makes me think of David Bowie. Yeah, exactly. The extra space meant that they could keep animals, including ducks, pigs, turtles, and even a possum. And their father <laughs> built a beehive in a hobby shed in the garden. That's amazing. Beehive, though. I think it would be kind of dangerous to do a beehive. Josh is obsessed with I bees. Would, I would totally be a beekeeper in another life. What? He's yeah, obsessed with I'm, bees. I love him. Obsessed. He Allergic, wants... but I love him. It's a weird thing. How did this happen? I don't know. I think... I mean, you know, we have a bee thing. My neighbor was just saying right outside, bees have been getting in, but for some reason they've been dying right outside our doors. And stuff. Yeah, it's a weird thing right now. I'm fascinated. I, just, yeah. I mean, they are, they're the foundation of life. Is kind of how I see it. Like, there's mm-hmm. so much result. Like, explain we, to the audience. <laughs> explain. Well, now I'm a scientist. Yeah. So. Hello, scientist Josh. <laughs> yes, scientist <laughs> Josh. <laughs> so much. I, well, Josh. so much of of life in terms of the food chain and all that is mm-hmm. really dependent on what bees do for the food chain in terms of like pollinating all the things, our crops, all of our, I mean, the, the big thing about Are you going to tell that to Monte Santo? I, well, that's, I mean, that's a big conversation in itself, <laughs> but you know, the idea is that. Or Monsanto. With is it Monte the, Santo or Monsanto? Monsanto. Oh, yeah. sorry. Well, now I think they're owned by, I forget who, I, I think it's a, uh, Another Bristol, Bristol Myers or something like that. Yeah. Anyway. I didn't know that. Yeah. Don't fact check me on that. But the bees, there's you know there's this the the sort of like the colony collapse disorder and like the die off of bees has been a big thing and like when Mm. and if that happens on a bigger scale or continues to happen like we will lose a large part of the food that supplies humanity. Might try and kill a bee. So messed up. I mean. I don't think it's anybody. Like I don't think anybody is, and I think they're trying oh, to okay. figure out if it's a you know some combination of climate change, but also all the pesticides and like mm. nobody really knows what's happening. There's definitely a migration effort as well, mm. and so it's there is a migration. That's good. Well, be, yeah, I don't know where they're going and where they're coming from and what nobody. I mean, there's how the, come you didn't study beekeeping and stuff? Maybe you should. Uh, well, you know, you've got time. I would. I mean. God, I'd move to the south of France, and that's what I would do. Is, is oh, grow some honey, grow some fields like, of lavender, oh, lavender and oh. rosé and bees, and yeah. I come visit and Claude uh, and Claude Monet, yeah. and Vincent Van Gogh. You know the yeah. the meaning of Melissa in Greek is honeybee. Is it really? Oh, I love that. That's great. That's what Melissa means. Oh, you are a little honeybee. Boom. <laughs> I'm from this day forward. I'm going to call you honeybee. Honeybee, yeah. honeybee. What's hey, going honey on, honeybee? <laughs> Do it. Yeah. That's the meaning of my name. I love that. Yep. That's funny that you said that. So uh, I said that the family, yes, moved, had some ducks and pigs and stuff, <laughs> and, and he was bees, a beekeeper. And a beekeeper. Yep, a beehive. 
She transferred to a different elementary school and she experienced a significant moment during a school concert. So Adrian Savage, a black girl from a poor family whose house had burned down on Thanksgiving, sang during a school concert, put your hand in the hand mm. and a gospel mm. song with secular elements mm -hmm. and her world was turned upside down with that song. Her voice and style of singing made a huge impression on Eva. Hmm. Huge. And Aunt Isabel gave Eva her first instrument, an auto harp. Oh, wow. I don't know the difference between a harp and an auto harp. I don't either. Yeah, I'm sure that auto yeah harp I tried is. to look it up, but I couldn't, I couldn't understand what I was looking at. Yeah. She quickly mastered the instrument. A year later, Hugh gave her a harmony guitar in which he taught her the basics. The first song that Eva taught herself to play and sing was a traditional folk song called I Wish I Was a Single Girl Again, <laughs> a song that would become a fixture in her repertoire at later concerts. Did you hear that, Josh? Did you hear that song? Who, me? Yeah. And it was I amazing. heard it. I've heard it. You've heard yeah, it. Yeah. Wow, so it's right. Her brother Dan got a violin, so Eva and Dan often played together. She also taught herself her favorite artist, Buffy's, song tall trees in georgia i love that song oh, that's so buffy st marie's song is it yes which became a firm favorite another song yep, in her repertoire yep, yep. i know that one well that's buffy st marie okay tall yeah. trees in georgia they grow so high they shade me so So one of Eva's favorite TV shows was the Sonny and Cher show. Uh, of course. I know. I love that show, too. And Eva and Margaret idolized Cher like everybody like else. Like me. And me. And nonetheless, they imitated Cher in front of their mirror, lacking Cher's long hair. They draped towels over their head and <laughs> secretly used Hugh's shoe polish in an attempt to achieve its jet black color. Oh, my God. I did That's the whole thing. Amazing. I did the whole thing with the... <laughs> me and Susan did the whole thing with the towels and stuff. I mean, oh, my God. You know, like Cher, when she do this. Yeah. Who doesn't totally. want to be Cher? I know, right? Her favorite film, however, was The Wizard of Oz, and we know why. That's my favorite movie. That's your favorite movie? Favorite movie. That was her favorite film. Mm -hmm. And she was 10 years old when she first heard Judy Garland sing Over yeah. the Rainbow, and it touched her deeply. It would become a signature song, as we know, for later in life, and around this time, she began painting with watercolors. Oh, love it. In, in November 1971, Hugh, weighing 300 pounds, took the title of world champion super heavyweight power lifter. <laughs> what? This is such a weird side so story. Isn't it? Yeah. Like, who? Hugh yeah. was a, he's a, he's a he rascal. Was a beast. He is a beast. It was the last medal he would win. The sport led him to injuring his leg, but he would continue to be involved as a coach. In the same year, the family home was redecorated by a house painter called Leo, who spent several weeks with the Cassidy family. Hmm. The Cassidy children took him immediately, took to him immediately, and gave him the pet name Leo with the beard because he had a big <laughs> beard. And although a house painter by profession, Leo painted canvases in his spare time. And Hugh encouraged Eva to visit Leo at his home I mean, so he could teach her how to paint. Now, you wouldn't do that now. No, that's no. a little yeah, troublesome. Yeah. Like, all kinds of flags you wouldn't went do up that for me now. at this moment. <laughs> see, me, it'd be like I'm going to, going with you to yeah, see yeah. Leo, I'm right? I'm going to watch him <laughs> yes, as intently. he shows you how to paint. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so there was another side to Leo that was new to Dan and Eva. He was a minister. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. 
he asked them to join him and his wife at the church. Now, Barbara and Hugh were surprised, and they liked him. Uh, they gave their blessing for the kids to go along with him and his wife to church. And so Leo and his wife picked up Eva, Margaret, and Dan. And most of, But when they got there, they noticed most of the congregation was black. And in fact, Leo, his wife, Dan, Margaret, and Eva were the only white people present. And it was here that Eva first came upon black music. She loved it. She loved it. They all loved it, actually. But Eva absorbed it on TV, radio, and they were just taken with the positive and uplifting, you know, music of gospel music. You know, I grew up in the church, and so I know most of the songs. There's nothing that, else like it. Yeah. So, and that's where Whitney grew up. Mm-hmm. Whitney grew up in the church. That's where she got that amazing voice. Um, Pastor Leo with the beard became a professional promoter of the Christian message and was soon asked to work for a larger congregation in a real church in the east of D.C. But I read later, and I didn't put it in here, is that she ended up going to another church that was all white, and they like was like, okay, uh, bye. Yeah. Mm. You know, they got their mom to tell the person, some lady that they bef- that they befriended the family, and she was like, you should go to church with us, and they were like, no, nah, it's not the same. Nah, it's fun at black churches. It's, it's fun. so fun. I've it, been many it's times. Have you? It's so much better. Oh, yeah. nice. Because yeah. I grew up Catholic, and I was an altar boy. Oh, and wow. We so did you had all fun tradition. When you saw all that. Yeah, but we had boring. we had the choir. Oh my god, that was the worst choir ever. I right. remember thinking this choir is awful. <laughs> they just sit in their deadpan or what? They just sit up and they sing their song yeah, and they and sit just, back down. The voices are right. awful. The songs it's are awful. Right. It's not like a praise church. No, where just, you know, right. No, there's no there's no no soul to it. There's right. no energy. Right. There's no nothing. No energy because a lot of people who grew up and you know I've talked about this in Rockabies. A lot of the best singers, like Marvin Gaye, yeah. mm. Aretha Franklin, Sam Cooke, they all came from the church. Yeah. And um, a lot of those spirituals, people don't know, those spirituals, some of them came from the um, slavery days. Yeah. And it was as a message to tell people where to go. Yeah. Like, go tell on the mountain. Yeah. Like, that's like, meet at Harriet there Tubman's was a place. It was a message, yeah. yeah. At 6 o'clock. Cause they, Get out. <laughs> yeah. Meet at there at 6 and we all going to escape. Okay, yeah. that's what that meant. So it's funny. In 1976, she went to Robert Godard Junior High School. The Cassidy children were taken six miles by school bus every day to there. And this is bad because this really started out a dark period for her. She became an outsider and a recluse because she was bullied heavily. Really? Really bad. Really bad. And she suffered from adolescent depression from all that. Um... They really went at her, her, you know, her classmates, you know, even though she designed the cover of the annual school book yearbook, you should try and look and see if you can find some of her artwork online. It's, she was prolific. But she had worked for hours on a painting one time for the school, and jealous fellow pupils ruined the painting by throwing drops of paint on the canvas and claiming it was an accident, and she just cried in public when she didn't know how to defend herself against this type of treatment. It was pretty bad. And when I read it, I was like, oh, you know, she didn't know what to do. But the one bright side is she met, you know, lifelong friends at the time, sisters Ruth and Celia Murphy and Rosemary Rockwell's choir lessons, because that's what she started taking. Eva played the guitar and she had a great voice, but she didn't like to sing the solo parts Mm -hmm. because she was too shy. Yeah. 
Um, the choir sang all kinds of music, including hymns and spirituals and folk songs, such as The Water is Wide. Love that song. Oh, uh, see. And I did read one um, song, I mean, one story, and I should have put it in here, is that one day the teacher was getting kind of frustrated with them for the singing. And so Eva took it upon herself to, I guess, sing this little solo part. Yeah. And it was so incredible that everybody was like stunned. Even the teacher was like, and she's like thirteen, basically yeah. around yeah, this time. around that time. And she said, "It just came out of me," or something <laughs> like that, you know. So Eva and Celia also joined a folk group that rehearsed after school, led by someone named Miss Bush, who's okay. a talkative lady and a devout Christian who played guitar and knew many songs. Um, it was here that Eva learned what was to become a favorite song of hers, was "Wade in, in the Water." water. I sang that, that as a kid. With my choir, I was in the junior choir. I couldn't sing with the lick, but we did sing Wade in the Water. Love Wade in the Water. The origin of the spiritual song Wade in the Water is unknown. It was first recorded and published by the Fisk Jubilee Singers in 1901. According to many sources, the song, among other songs, was used by the abolitionist legend Harriet Tubman to guide escaped slaves on their route to freedom in the mid-1800s. In addition to Evo's cover, the song has been famously covered by such diverse artists as Mavis Staples and the Staples Singers, Clara Ward and the Ward Singers, Billy Preston and the Fine Young Cannibals. Yeah, and as time went on, Hugh Cassidy introduced his children to several, several albums that gradually shifted their interests from acoustic folk to more solid electric rock. Hmm. Favorites included Bonnie Raitt. I love Bonnie Raitt. I mean, uh, Bonnie Raitt is just, just untouchable. Okay, like, who's just your favorite Bonnie Raitt song? Well, it's funny. I literally just discovered one last week, and it's not hers, but it's there's a version online that I came across. She sings with a guy. Is it Mississippi? Is it? Um, it's when the daylight dims, or something like that. Yeah. When the day, something when the. Yes. And it's not her song, but it's she not. performs it, you're right. and I was like, oh my. I God. think I know which one you're talking about. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna find it when we finish. Yeah. Because I think I know which exactly one you're talking about, and yeah. it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Your body rate's no joke. Um, Emmy Lou Harris. Love. Uh, Linda Ronstadt, who Amazing. I love. I love Linda Ronstadt. She's incredible. Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. I love yeah. Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. I've seen them a thousand times. Yeah. And have you guys seen them in concert? Yep, I have. Yeah. Did you guys go to the Dodger Stadium? No, and see I saw them when the they bowl. were there. Last I saw time them I saw the them was when they were all together, but it was at the. I saw them at Staples Center. Oh, oh wow. I saw them at the Staples Center. I yeah. was there that night because yeah. I saw them at the Staples Center, and yeah, I love. I love. At the, you know, Lindsey Buckingham was there a few years ago when they were at the Dodger Stadium, and it was Christy McVie was there too. Yeah. And they were there with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, wow. And Journey. Oh, what a good night. Yeah. That was a blast. See, and if, if Ryan had been with me, I would have invited him because I, I bought tickets not knowing uh, who I was going to take. And then I was like, I took someone. They were, first, the first person I asked said, of course, yes. Sure. Yeah. But it was funny. Because I would have asked Ryan. Um, yes, Fleetwood Mac, the Eagles. Linda Ronstadt and Eva had one thing in common, though. They didn't write their songs, but they interpreted them, which was amazing. Yeah, incredible. Um, it's sad about Linda Ronstadt now. Uh -huh. mm. So sad. So sad. 
Eva's room was the smallest bedroom in the house, yet she began to spend more and more time alone there. She was a loner. She was a deep thinker, like somebody else we know. Mm. And uh, nobody knew exactly what she did in her room, but she produced many drawings and she played her guitar for hours on end, perfecting her technique. She listened to a lot of music that was new and unknown to her. Uh, the soul of Aretha Franklin and the jazz of Sarah Vaughan mm. and Ella Fitzgerald, and she imitated these singers. Uh, Joan Baez, for example, taught her how to use her vibrato, something that Hugh was constantly hammering her to develop. Mm -hmm. Ella Fitzgerald, a huge influence for more than a year, would later help Eva to learn improvisation and scatting. Mm -hmm. As well as performing regularly at weddings and bar mitzvahs with a top 40 band. Oh, so by the way, I think I got ahead of myself. Hugh created a trio with Hugh, Dan, and Eva. Mm. <laughs> kind of like the Von Trapps. Mm -hmm. Kind of like the Von Trapps. <laughs> yeah. Yep. They, they turned that whole musical performance at Christmas time. And Tim going, like, this is going to be good. Right. And so Hugh started having them go and perform. I love that. So, you know, they performed at weddings and bar mitzvahs with a top 40 band. And they improved, improved this improved Eva's guitar. And Dan's violin playing was amazing. Hugh would either be on the mandolin or the electric bass <laughs> guitar. Hugh was a mess. He is like a rock star. Yeah. Hugh is a rock star. And he made them practice regularly, but they found it hard to deal with him because he could be demanding. Right. Uh, Hugh criticized Eva's vocals, which frustrated her mm -hmm. sometimes. And um, Dan would later say, although Hugh only critiqued Eva's singing at this time, he would often offer very helpful guidance to raise her level of music making. Uh, he stimulated Eva a lot in learning that Paul Simon tune American tune that he introduced her to, but they butted heads. Hmm. You know, he probably looked at it as being helpful, but she took it because she was such Criticism. a sensitive. Yeah. yeah, she was so super sensitive. She was an artist. And Hugh took the band to several prestigious local venues. They entertained guests at the lobby of expensive five star hotels, including the Hilton and Beth Bethesda. Don't know it. Bethesda? But that, yes. Okay. Yeah. And occasionally they performed at weddings. On April 2nd, 1978, Eva and her dad and her brother Dan played a show at the Fleet Reserve Club. And as they were walking in, Dan remembers that Eva said, whatever happens, Dan, don't show your ignorance. <laughs> and that was usually he chuckles at their favorite quote from the Ras Little Rascals. <laughs> she tried to loosen her guitar, which was tuned by Hugh from the stand. And when she turned around, she stood transfixed as the microphone and Stan dropped to the wooden floor with a loud bang. Oh God. She cried and ran off stage. And she struggled with performing for the rest of her life. Wow. Like, that was hard for her. Yeah, mm. it's embarrassing. Yeah, she, she just couldn't take it. And Hugh decided not to push his children to play in public with him anymore. Uh, after the demise of the trio, he turned his hand to electric bass guitar, which made it easier for Dan turned to his hand to the... Did I say that right? Yeah. Did I? Yeah. Okay, let me just repeat it because I know I, <laughs> I felt like I tongue-tied myself. But, you could have, but I understood the intent. Did you? Thank yeah. you. Hugh decided not to push his children to play in public with him anymore. After the, the, the demise of the trio, Dan turned his hand to the electric bass guitar, the brother, yeah. which made it easier for him to play with other musicians. Hugh taught him how to play it, and Dan, unlike Eva, was happy to accept his father's criticism. I guess sure. that's how you take it, things. Yeah. Eventually, Hugh agreed that Dan and Eva planned together and advised them to look for musicians of their own age. They discovered that they could play together successfully in 1960s, 1976, actually, a few years before, 
when Dan spent several days in the hospital following a leg operation, hmm. Eva would visit and to pass the time she brought along his violin and her guitar. And Dan hadn't played for several days, but they tuned up and began to pick out a melody. And they hadn't built their, they built a repertoire from that day on. And one of their successes was Dust in the Wind. I love that song. Oh, so good. By Kansas. Yeah. I love that. They were big fans of Simon and Garfunkel, and their confidence in each other started growing. They were almost like the Carpenters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, if you think about uh-huh. it. In 1979, Dan and Eva, now in Bowie High School and performing in front of school, were performing in front of school audience, were invited to join a hard rock band that specialized in heavy metal songs of such groups like Black Sabbath. Oh wow, that doesn't even seem like her like speed. Right? Yeah. Based on her music. <laughs> can like, you even I can, imagine? No, I can't. It's so interesting. But I there's certain songs where I can feel that. Yeah, that no, she can go really. wild. She can go wild. Yeah. That's crazy. But not really. She wasn't a fan of the music, I just got to tell you. Okay. Um, but she saw it as an opportunity to improve her voice and right. to play in a band. Yeah, exactly. You know? You know, I think about when you did that, I think about Jim Carrey and um, what's the liar, liar. Oh, yeah. And they did the, the outtakes at the end, and they showed water being poured, and he made it look like he was using a restroom. <laughs> in the court scene, that's funny. Yeah. You know, you should pour more than that. That's okay. That's you like, sure? Yeah. There's more to be had. Thank you. So um, during this period, we got a lot. We got a lot to go through in her life. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. So during this period, Eva began a relationship with a guy named Thurston. That doesn't sound right anyway. No. With Thurston? a name like Thurston. I was Thurston Howe. Yeah. You yeah. knew somebody named Thurston? Well, there's a there's Thurston a guy Howell. that there's a photographer that's actually pretty famous now. Um, his name is Thurston, and I. The first I've ever heard of that name. Really? Yeah. Well, you'd think of Thurston Howe from, from um, Gilligan's, Gilligan's Island. Island. Yeah. Mm. And I think the guy from Sonic Youth. Isn't his name Thurston? I think so. Oh, my God. Maybe. But um, that lasted for at least two years, her and Thurston. And Thurston rode a motorbike. I guess that's every father's nightmares, your mm-hmm. daughter in the back of a motorcycle. But anyway, and he was also a musician who sometimes played in the band. But, you know... Nobody really liked Thurston, I don't think. So, because I wrote, when Eva came to the same conclusion, she broke off the relationship. So, I think there's a part. Done. So, somebody might not. Maybe people liked him. But it wasn't right. But maybe the parents didn't like him or something. But most parents don't like their daughter's (laughs) boyfriend named Thurston on a motorbike, you know? Um, Eva struggled with her self-image, and it showed in her art. When Dan discovered a drawing of a bleeding pig in Eva's bedroom and asked what, what she wanted to say with this work, she answered, this is me. Mm-hmm. I know. She believed she was overweight. She wasn't. Was she? I was like, I don't no. think I've ever think seen so. what she looks no, like. No, so. You never saw what she looks like? I don't think uh, so. I mean, oh, I'm in the dark you, on all this. You know what? We got to show you a picture. You know what? Now I really need to show you a She's picture. Beautiful. Because she does not look like what you think she's going to look like. Everyone look up the photo of what she looks like right now. I know. This is, um, and you know what? It's good. Wait till Aww. you see what she looks like. Um, she kind of has like a, some of the like older photos, a little bit of look, a Stevie Look at all vibe. these images of yeah. her. Look at this Kind of this a little, little Joni Mitchell vibe too. Totally. And But when you hear that voice with Chuck Brown, remember I played yeah, you that? Yeah, Like that is playing, that That's coming crazy. out of that. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Uh, the fledgling hard rock band christened themselves Nightwing and took to the stage sharing a bill at the Bowie Coffee House 
and in a series of concerts put on at Bowie High School. So they started to attract a lot of attention, um, Dan and uh, Eva, and, but Dan's violin to the band Nightwing, I know it's pretty incredible. And you know, we're going to leave it up because there's some of these photographs that, that I'm going to talk about, actually. I feel like if Reese Witherspoon could like sing, she should play her life story. Oh, I know. Yeah. You'd need to have like... like look, there's like moments where they look alike. Yeah, they do. They do. Um, she has a more of a melancholy look than Reese, yeah, yeah. I think. You know, because yeah. she had such a melancholy look. But Dan's violin added the goth-like nature to the to the hard rock hard rock vibe. That's the margarita. <laughs> but people need to know that I have my Mean Girls cup, and it says "Boo, you whore" from the, from the movie. Good for me. Take All a right. sip. What does your What does yours say, Josh? Uh, pink ladies. This is a grease. Woo. Mine says peace. Oh, that's a Christmas one. Peace. Yeah, it's peace. Christmas and summer. Yep. Deuces and peace. Um, so. Uh, the, the band gave the siblings their first opportunity to hone their band skills. They struggled to ri- struggle to ri- rise above the volume of the other players. I can see that because that that music is so harsh. It's so hard. Yeah. But brother and sister Cassidy used the time between Sabbath-inspired rock sets to show the audience what they were capable of as a duo. Hmm. And years of craft crafting their art at home had resulted in a complete set list of impressive duets all of which contrasted sharply with Nightwing style. Soon after, they were invited by Ned Judy to join another band called Stonehenge, which was a progressive rock band with vocal harmonies. They practiced in drummer Mark Morella's garage. Hmm. His parents allowed them to use their garage as a music space in order to keep him from hanging around in the streets. (laughs) So Eva would have a short but not serious relationship with Mark that lasted for about a year. And there were two important conditions that she, that her and Dan agreed to join Ned Judy's, the Stonehenge. And the conditions were their musical ideas be shared, mm-hmm. you know, by the other members. And since they found it so difficult to adapt to new situations that they had to click on a personal level before mm-hmm. they could do it, mm-hmm. which is kind of like what, what Stevie Nicks, and Lindsey Buckingham said to Mick Fleetwood. Yeah. That's what he said. Like, they said, you want to come join our band, Lindsey Buckingham? And he's like, I got to bring my girlfriend. And it was Stevie Nicks. Right. She was like a maid or something. Like, she did, like, odd jobs. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. I know, right? Mm. Thank God she found her calling. Yeah, right. Their first rehearsal was in 1980, and it proved to be the beginning of a very close friendship. But it turned out to be, like, the amazing... Relationship. These would be lifelong friendships. The rehearsals in the Morelli's good garage could be heard from all over the neighborhood, and it didn't take long before the first curious visitors found their way to them, and soon enough the garage transformed into like a club venue <laughs> that attracted, you know, the ostracized youth, they said, of Bowie. And Eva's confidence began to grow in a group where she finally felt accepted. And in fact, even today, most of the original lineup still play in a jazz band called Mosaic. So if people are on that side of the world, you know, of the United States, go see them. And then they, um, outside of the Bowie High School, wait, Bowie High Coffee House, Stonehenge didn't perform that much in public. But the boys and Eva began to spend every spare moment with each other, going to the movies, building campfires having weekend trips away. They camped in the mountains and walked and cycled in the woods, taking full advantage of their proximity to 
you know, national parks. Another popular destination was the Morelli's uh, Beach House, so they must have had money. In Ocean City, a seaside resort where even Dan brought their instruments along and with their newfound confidence, they performed on the boardwalk <laughs> to an admiring public. Can you imagine going past your, your girl and I'm seeing her play? It. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. Yeah, and people would stop their leisurely walks to crowd around the duo, but several, a lot of times, policemen had to intervene and break it up. They discovered that there was a thriving industry based around recruiting performers for, like, weddings and parties in Washington, D.C., so they decided, you know what, we're going to change up our vibe. We're going to go get suits, mm -hmm. and in 1981, they signed a contract with a, cap, with a talent agent, and they changed their song selection to, like, 1940s and 50s standards, like Misty, Autumn Leaves, but you know Autumn Leaves, of course, being her. Of course. And Mac the Knife, Secret Love, Aww. and other jazz and rock blue favorites. And the group changed their name to Easy Street, and in reference to how easy it had been to get on the road and earn money. Um, it was at this point that Mark's like, deuces, this, I, I want to be a part of a rock band. Uh, but they stayed friends. And the group also had to consider their image for the first time. And the boys got blue tuxedos, and she had to wear a black dress, which wasn't good because she hated dressing up like that. That wasn't her style. And she hated the girly look, as she told her mom. <laughs> That's what she told her mom. She hated it. Uh, Easy Street's first performance was at the Manassas Lodge of the Elks Association, which was a fraternity in Virginia, on September 19, 1981. And Eva tended to experiment with pot and alcohol, along with everybody else, but the partying never really got, got a grip on her. She never partied. She wasn't like everybody else right. with the crack, you know, and everything else. <laughs> the band with the went, crack. You know, like not crackish. Crackish. Uh, she didn't become crackish. Uh, the band was offered two gigs over Christmas, and they both signed up for both. And after playing a handful of Bowie gigs, they performed two big concerts at the community college. And fortunately, they still practice in the Morelli garage with Mark, mm -hmm. where they continue to rehearse, And because he, he was their friend. And they were still a part of Stonehenge. So it was only a matter of time before they began to write their own songs, because there were no egos, and Eva felt more and more at ease. So speaking back to what you were talking about earlier, about songs coming out, because yeah. you're going to see how prolific it got. Um, there were still moments where she came out of her shell, and she started doing drawings in front of them. And it's funny because she was sitting in total silence, which showed her comfortableness with them. Because yeah. normally she'd be in a room by herself. Yeah. And she had never been able to create in the company of others, but this was a major step. And so they recognized her talent and would allow her to do that, encourage her to prove her work. And she had not given up on the idea of career in arts, but she could be really self-critical. And when she was dissatisfied with a drawing, she would destroy it by throwing the remains into the trash. Hmm. And what happened is they started taking those paintings out of the trash, and they all built up quite a collection. Oh, wow. Especially Ned. He built up a unique Eva Cassidy art collection in that way, which was pretty incredible. That's amazing. So uh, she first worked at a horse race, horse race course which just outside of Bowie, in which she handled thoroughbreds, after training by cooling them down and returning them to their stalls after they'd been out running. But she complained about rat traps in the stables. And from that moment on, she became a laughing stock at work. Hmm. And she hit rock bottom when a fellow worker caught a rat 
and tortured it and killed it in front of her in the most brutal way possible. Mm-hmm. And she quit her job and started working at Benki, uh, a plant nursery. <laughs> Isn't that awful? It sounds about like what I would do. Yeah, me too. You would quit too? Oh, no. yeah. Yeah, you do that shit in front of me. Gone. Yeah. Would you want to punch the guy? that person's gone or Would you I'm punch gone? them? I would, I would probably lose my shit to see somebody torturing an animal, yeah. I know. Wouldn't that, yeah. I mean, what kind of a, I wouldn't even date a guy who tortured an animal. No. That's some fucking no, no, shit. No, no, no. Yeah. Anyway. In 1983, her friends persuaded her to attend an audition at Wild World Amusement Park, and she was a hit. Her and the guys, they came along with her, and the days there were long, and but it taught her a lot because playing in the park proved an excellent opportunity to work on their craft in front of an uncritical audience. Mm-hmm. And they gained a wealth of experience and discipline and performance, and um, it also gave them a regular income. Did you know she was this, like, no. she worked this hard from... No, no idea. Yeah, it's amazing. I know, it's crazy, huh? Yeah. So when not performing, Eva would spend many hours and often whole days in her bandmate Ned's small home studio. I knew about Ned. You knew about Ned, yeah? yeah? Home studio, yeah. Experimenting in the studio was the perfect outlet for Eva. She continued to hone her singing. This line that I wrote here, and it made me think, like, she had some special gift. And I can't remember what you call it, but... She told Ned one day, she said, I see the song lines before me like color patterns. Like synesthesia. Yes. I think this is what she had Mm -hmm. because that's what she told him. She loved to play with sounds and she recorded all kinds of stories and ambient noises. And during this time, she began to develop her classic arrangement for Over the Rainbow Mm because it took years for her to perfect that arrangement that you hear. And she started during this time with Ned. Wow. In the summer of 1983, it's so beautiful. I know, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Her childlike recordings took on a greater seriousness after she met singer and composer Michael Ingram at the Wild World Amusement <laughs> Park. And Ned and Michael worked especially well together, and Ned turned Michael's lyrics and ideas into fully realized songs and even made them shine. They recorded songs in Ned's house. Ned discovered a talent for transforming his lyrics into a real song within a few hours. Eva would come in pick up the lyric sheet, sing it through a few times with Ned accompanying her, then sit by the microphone, and she'd do, he would man the four-track cassette recorder, and she'd just create it right there. Wow. Didn't take much for her. Michael left to travel around Europe, staying in New York for a while, and arriving back in Maryland in the 80s. His plan was to make a record with his old friends and try to sell it to an independent British music label. They recorded several songs under the name characters without names <laughs> ingram sent several copies to a string of record companies but only mute records responded saying the girl has a pretty good voice but i don't know what i could do with the songs call me when you play out and i'll come by to see the show that's all they got eva would polish her songs over and over and over again and her voice and guitar playing developed quickly as a result and she still loved those jazz and soul singers like ella and Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder. And together with Ned, she attended concerts to see and hear Ella and Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin. Oh, wow. She painted a portrait of Ned for his 19th birthday. She positioned him at his grand piano between two enormous mountains. Two elements were typical of Eva's gift, her preference for the colors blue and white and the fact that she didn't finish a painting. (laughs) The painting still hangs on Ned's wall, music room wall, to this very day. And um, 
it came from the heart because when she gave it to him, their romantic relationship blossomed hmm. that day. I, that must be sexy. If a guy does a painting for you, I know if a guy did a painting for me and gave it to me, that would kind of turn me on, I it's think. beautiful. And beautiful. they can sing, too. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, would you be turned on, Josh, if yeah. that happened? Yeah. Not now. No. But before the now. I mean, if Paul Newman was going to, like, do it. Yeah, now. Paul Newman. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty sexy. That is sexy. Yeah. Totally sexy. So if Van Gogh gave you that painting... And then sang me a song. And sang you a song. It'd be, and love, sing. For, it'd be love for life. There you go. It'd be love for life. F. Mary. Mary no kill. No kill? Wow. If he sang okay. Starry Starry Night. Oh, then. my God. Which <laughs> <laughs> would be weird. Very Inception. Yeah. Right? I know, right? But it'd be great. Or that church song uh, with no doors. Beautiful. Dan went to stay with a family in Germany in 1984, joining a film folk band as their fiddler, which I think is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Eva sent material to the California Institute of the California of the Arts. California what? Institute she of the did? Arts. In Valencia. And they replied by saying, come on down. Come, what? Come welcome new enroll. Yeah. But they would be expensive and she would, she decided she'd have to pay a deposit on registration uh, plus $13,000 a year in school fees. Yeah. She got accepted to CalArts. Yes. She wasn't adventurous. She wasn't very adventurous. I have to imagine 13,000 a, a huge amount of money. Yeah. She didn't even have a bank account. Yeah, there's no way anyone who yeah. could afford that. That's ridiculous. Yeah, and she would have been reliant on her father to provide the fees. Typically, she never mentioned the issue to him nor arranged to pay it herself. The registration date quietly slipped by. A week later, Eva told her mom that she'd been accepted, but that it was too late to take proper action. Hugh was mad. He was furious. She said, I didn't want you to pay all that money for me, Dad. And he said, I would have preferred to make that decision. Mm. That's a great line. Her bandmates, Larry and Ned, asked Eva to come to L.A. to perform with them, but she couldn't bring herself to do it. It's such a shame. She she was not an adventurous girl. Mm -mm. Now, I didn't know this, that the California Institute of Arts was started up by Walt Disney. Did you know that? I don't know Mm -hmm. if I did. I learned that. Um, he founded and created in the 60s. Wow. I guess if it makes sense with yeah. all those animators yeah, at Disney. Like a, it's a training program. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Her mom convinced her to register for drawing classes at Prince George's Community College in Largo, which was much closer to home and a lot cheaper. And during her time at the Academy, she was awarded the Blue Ribbon Prize, an annual accolade given by the art department at Prince George's Community College for one of her oil paintings. I love that. Eva also made a silk screen from a portrait of jazz trumpeteer Miles Davis mm. and printed the image on t-shirts, t-shirts. Sorry, t-shirts which she sold. Most of the time, though, she gave her artwork away for free. Wow. Yeah. I want one. I know, right? Mm-hmm. You look it up. Nearly all of Eva's musician friends had moved to Los Angeles except for Dave Lorem, who remained nearby. He had left Stonehenge. He was in Stonehenge with her too. Dave spent his days composing and recording music, working professionally with a 24-track recorder on a project he named Method Actor. Hmm. He liked to experiment with all kinds of sounds, and 24 tracks gave him the chance to enjoy his musical freedom to the fullest. He played most of the instruments himself, but would sometimes invite friends to join in, and soon enough he looked to his girl Eva for inspiration. So David didn't adapt his music to... Eva's voice because he knew she was able to sing anything. 
She could do anything. And they worked from improvisation. Hmm. He didn't write down her parts, and she would listen to new fragments and then just fill them with her vocals any way she liked. And she not only invented the lead parts, but she created harmonies for second, third, and sometimes fourth parts on the spot. Oh, wow. They took their time working for several years. David and Eva were delighted with the results, and they tried to interest record companies. And after they had built up enough material, in an effort to get them noticed, David enlisted other musicians for their live performance, and they called the band Method Actor. Hmm. This is, remember this, because this is going to come back later. Yeah. This is going to come back later. So in 1986, Method Actor played several times at the Bayou, a live music club mm-hmm. in Georgetown, and the owner was impressed by their music, and the following year he organized a talent show for fledging local, local bands, which would include Method Actor, and he invited record executives like Warner Brothers, Warner Music, and all that fun stuff. Eva took to the stage that night dressed in hippie attire, and during the show they became aware of the Warner executives in the balcony, Knowing she was being judged, Eva found it hard to sing, and the rest of the group were paralyzed with fear. Their performance was a disaster. Mm. And halfway through the show, the executives got up and left the bar. Oh, damn it. It's crushing. Yeah. David was very disappointed. On the other hand, Eva was relieved. She was afraid that she would be imprisoned in a musical style that wasn't entirely her own. She enjoyed playing the music of Method Actor, but she needed more freedom. So I guess in a way it's probably worked out for the best, yeah. In the spring of 1987, Chris Biondo, you know who that is, Mm -hmm, I'm sure, mm -hmm. owned a particular recording facility of Black Pond Studio, but I think they named it something else. And he worked with the guys from the Method Actor Project, but he was missing a female voice on the recordings, and David was like, look, I didn't tell you, but Eva will be here in a minute. She's great. They waited, but she didn't turn up. Hmm. Chris decided to look for her, and when he opened the black door, opened his back door, I'm sorry, not black door. (laughs) That sounds nasty. (laughs) (laughs) All the times a black door has been open for me. Oh, my God, that was funny. (laughs) That's that margarita speaking. My favorite kind of door. (laughs) Exactly. There was Eva shielded by a black cowboy hat. She was too afraid to enter. And he said, get in here. I don't, I don't have all day. So she came in. So at once everyone was settled, Chris began to explain how this session's going to work. And David interrupted, like, look, look, look. Eva knows what she's doing, okay? And he was right. Chris was blown away by Eva's powerful voice. And he was especially impressed with her ability to improvise three and four-part harmonies. Eva, prof- I don't even know what half of that means, but it sounds impressive. Do you know? Yeah, I mean, tell, tell, well, I oh, can't. Then tell the audience what that means. Tell me. Well, so there's, you know, there's the melody of a line, and then if you... Which is standard. Yeah, and then the harmony is going to hit, like, a chord, probably, sometimes it's a third or a fifth above, and you sing that, and it creates mm-hmm. this pleasing tone, but she can probably, like, what they're saying, she can do three or four parts of that. You can go either above or below. Right. And so you come up with this, like, full vocal orchestration. Wow. With the melody being the lead line, but everything wow. else kind of supporting Like her own background singing and Yeah, stuff. so like if you think like Simon and Garfunkel, how they always sung. Right. Paul Simon. Well, I, I think they switched off back and forth, but mm-hmm. I mean like that was always like harmony and, and, oh, and yeah. melody singing together, but just would have been multiplied by that. You know? Do you, can you think of any band that can um, 
It does it like Mariah Carey. Does she do that? Or when she in her early days? I don't know if it goes three or four parts. I would say off the top of my head, probably Beach Boys. Beach Boys, Pet Sounds. Yeah, there. Yeah, and I think Brian did a lot of that like arrangement. Yes, that's why they said that was like a instrument, like a influential album. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Good. See, we learned something new. Um. and so Eva preferred to sing her parts from a broom closet where nobody could see her. Mm. And the album Method Actor was released in 1988 on vinyl and cassette. It was intended as a showcase for David's, um, I don't know what David Christopher's, I think it meant both of theirs, composing and arranging and playing. But Eva's voice was so prominent. She sing, sang lead vocals on eight of the songs and also contributed most of the background vocals. And this makes me think of Sia. Mm. Isn't this what she did with Zero Seven? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's very true because she actually, wasn't. She can do both because it wasn't her band. But right. when you think of a lot of their big stuff, it was Sia. Yeah, singing the you know Zero Seven. Yeah. yeah, and I'm sure she could do this yeah. and this and this and yeah. harmonies. So I guess if I had to think about it, because I wrote that note like to a myself. Modern day Sia. Mm-hmm. Modern day Sia, or Sia was a modern, modern day, day Eva. Eva. Yeah. Yeah. Pop music wasn't really Eva's thing, but she was very proud of her first record, handing it out generously to her friends and acquaintances. She seemed to be more proud of the cover, which was completely her own artwork, than of the actual record, asking her friends what they thought of the drawings rather than the songs. Mm -hmm. When Method Actor decided to take their album on the road, they had to seek out more musicians to reproduce the sound in a live format. And Tony and Mary Beth Bernou were friends of David, and he asked them to replicate Eva's background vocals to free her for the lead. And here's the problem. They couldn't recreate it because it was so complicated what she did. She didn't write down the parts, you know. (laughs) And all of her harmonies had been invented on the spot. So she always sang by heart and often improvised that they did their best to learn the vocals by listening to the record like endlessly, but they weren't able to catch the right lines. Yep, so great. I know. What appeared to be simple actually turned out to be really complicated, and she had to explain every line and turn to them. They admired her immensely because they knew she was super-duper, like, above-level yeah. talented. Even but when they got on stage... Uh, Eva wanted her backing singers right next to her because she was afraid to be in the spotlight. Oh, interesting. And on her own. Several months passed, and Eva and Chris lost track of each other, but to his great surprise, she eventually got back in touch to say she hadn't given up on the idea of starting a musical career on her own. Although she was obliged to remain there for financial reasons, she wanted to quit her job at Banneke's and was looking for studio work. Um, in order to attract attention, she needed a demo tape, which she asked Chris to arrange for her. Studio time was expensive, but Chris liked Eva, and he asked her to draw a portrait of his dog, Bernice, <laughs> as a form of payment. She painted it, and on the bottom of the painting, Eva wrote, she represents all that is good and kind in the world. Mm-hmm. Eva visited Chris's studio on a regular basis, and the friendship deepened. Now, how do you know about Chris? I don't know much about Chris. But how did you know about Ned? You said, I, I know. I that. remember because there was a book. There was a book about Ava's life that was, I don't know, in the mid 2000s. I think the family had put together, and he was mentioned in the book. Nice. Yeah. Oh, Chris is going to play a big part. So, Chris introduced, that's good though. You got a good memory. So, Chris introduced Eva to other studios, and she was soon earning money for her backup singing. 
Working with Eva was easy. She could harmonize. Her pitch was amazing. Her synchronization was good, and her musical memory was excellent. A rhythm and blues group named Experience Unlimited, or EU, were looking for a female gospel choir for their 1989 album Living Large, and through multi-track recording, Eva fulfilled the role of an entire choir on her own. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. That's insane. What I think is also probably interesting, yeah. I haven't heard the recording, but... Right. In we order to do to that, she probably changes some of the qualities of her voice so that it doesn't sound I'm sure she like does, if you yeah. if you sing over and over and you have your voice sounds the same. There, this phase sounds flat. Well, the phasing element starts to cancel it out, and mm-hmm. it just sounds like it's just really one strong. Mm-hmm. Like so, you kind of have to change the timbre of your voice wow. to make it sound like what's it's the name of that song? Person. We should look that song up and listen. We to it we should. It was a female gospel choir for their 1989 Living Large. I'll find it. And through multi-track recording, she fulfilled it. Yeah. Also, speaking of what I played for you guys in the beginning, Chris's studio was used by hip-hop artists. Mm. E-40, a California rapper, employed her help on the 1996 release, The Hall of Fame. And it was the song, Thank You. And Eva's lyrics were, I want to thank you, pimps and players, for sharing this with me. I want to thank you all the hustlers for showing me your life on the street. And she sang those lines and the record was a success. I played this for you. No idea. I've never heard it before tonight. It sounds amazing. People should go listen to it. E-40. Who would have thought? There's another surprise coming up that you're going to be blown away. So when they had enough band members to start a band, Chris persuaded a very reluctant Eva to call the group the the Eva Cassidy Band. Hmm. He suggested they hire a manager named Al Dale. He was uh, managing several local bands, and this came. This is crazy because Al happened to come to the studio to pick up some tapes just as Chris was recording with Eva. And after the recording, Eva introduced herself. Al was shocked. He thought he had been listening to a black woman. Several days later, Al called Chris and said, this girl, she's really great. She can have a great future in show business. Chris agreed, but he made it clear that Eva didn't believe in her own potential, and Al offered his help. But here were the issues that Al was up against here. She had extreme shyness, and with that shyness was a stubborn streak. Uh, She liked to sing songs from different genres. Um... And make them her own so you couldn't pigeon. She wasn't to be pigeonholed. Right. She didn't take herself seriously, so she dressed the way she wanted to. Uh, she thought it was degrading when female artists dressed provocatively. And most importantly, she had no desire for fame and was often heard to say, I don't want you to be famous. What I would like to have is a cottage at the ocean side where I can make music and create art. Hmm. Hmm. She kind of did that, I guess, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. But. The Eva Cassidy Band's first performance took place in March 1999, 1991 at the D.C. Bar Fatties, and the, the band tried to generate publicity for their own gigs by having Keith Grimes, the guitarist, call up the venue to ask who was performing that night, to which he'd say, Oh, Eva Cassidy? That's fantastic. I've got to come. Can you give me the directions on how to get there? <laughs> and sadly, in most of these spots in the town, their approach failed to create much of a buzz and at Sully's Bar, a bar in Virginia, they performed to an audience that, of just five or six people. Oh, that's crazy. Most of the time, they played for free. 
Each member of the band had to stick with their day jobs, and sometimes they were sometimes exhausted when they played. And Al, the manager, did his best to convince Eva to use her youth and looks to win over people, but she wasn't interested. And it makes me think about Jim Morrison. I don't know if you guys know this, but the doors started... I would have gone back to the lightning round. (laughs) You know what? So would you have F or Mary? What about Mary? No, he was a mess. He was incredible. You know what? I did a rock on him. You You should listen to it. Especially when I talk about his IQ being 141. Genius. We're talking about deep thinkers. Yeah. That was one. But with the doors, when they played across the street, I think, from the Whiskey of Go-Go, I can't remember the name of the club. It was somewhere before they got to Whiskey Go-Go, they played to an empty room. Mm. And when they got to Whiskey Go-Go, he got so freaking popular that 14-year-olds would call up and ask if he was going to be there that night. (laughs) But I understand what you mean. Yeah, Jim Morrison, yeah, you're right. That would be for me too. So one day, Al arranged for some publicity shots, which is actually right here. I want to show you. I'll show you at least the face of it all. She dressed up uh, because he uh, he told her, look, wear a, she's like, what should I wear? A black dress. So she dressed up and put some makeup on and entered the studio. And he was like, wow, you look great, Eva. You look wonderful. Several days later, they got the results of the photo shoot. They were like asking her, what do you think? And she says, uh, nice pictures, but I don't think that's me. And she didn't want to use her body to sell the music. And at her, at her wishes, only her face from the images was used. Mm-hmm. In spite of it, but there's, I think you can see the full image in somewhere where she has on heels and stuff. But she, um, in spite of his attempts to dress Eva, her wishes only her face be used. She preferred her shorts and jeans and baggy t shirts and mm-hmm. clog hopper shoes and hair tied back and a ponytail. This is to perform. Eva's a, objection to changing her appearance was not only the only obstacle. An even greater problem was her stage presence. I'm really tripping over myself in a good way tonight. (laughs) She just stood there, held her guitar or her microphone, and looked at the floor for most of the evening. So Al decided to start videotaping her to let her see what she was, you know, let's analyze these little results. Yeah, Yeah. let's see what you're doing. They practiced dance moves to give her performance a looser and lighter feel. He showed her how to move from one side of the stage to the other to give it a little entertainment twist. And they rehearsed for days until she suddenly stopped and just said, Look, Al, this doesn't work for me. I'm not Madonna. Okay? I'm not Madonna. I'm not Janet Jackson. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm not going to do this. And in the end, all Al managed to do was persuade her to click her fingers in time with the rhythm, which is what we heard for Blue Skies. Yeah. When she was yep. when she was doing this. The worst engagement for Eva Cassidy was at a country and western bar named Cotton Eye Joe <laughs> in Temple Hills. Downstairs was reserved for a more successful band, while Eva's group were upstairs and not that night not one single visitor came to see them. So they played without an audience. Wow, that's crazy. That's what you call a practice. Mm-hmm. A rehearsal. Yes, exactly. you're right. At the other extreme, she her favorite gig, gig was at Shoots Pool Hall. Can you imagine? No, she was playing at, at pool, pool halls. That voice. And between sets of her gigs, Eva would sometimes sit alone at a table. And as the weeks went by and the gigs racked up, Eva became more comfortable showing her frustration only at things that went wrong on stage. She would never like go off on the band, which is great. Uh, but if her guitar was out of tune, she would get angry. 
sometimes kicking the equipment in annoyance, which is a far cry from her, like the stand falling off and she crying and running off stage. Yeah, so that was a good thing. Good improvement. There. Yes. So Eva's uh, used a Yamaha guitar on the recording of Over the Rainbow that ended up on the Other Side album. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> However, she soon switched that guitar for a Guild Songbird. The Guild, the guitar she used for the rest of her life. She couldn't tune her guitar by herself, not even with an electric tuning device, so her bandmates, Keith Grimes or Mike Dove, would do it. That's shocking to me. Really? Yeah. Why? <clears throat> I mean... Bless you. To be, I don't know. That's just that's just a someone who has such a an a musical amazing, ear for yeah, harmonies and all and those tone. things, and you can't tune your guitar. I find that interesting. I know her dad did it for her earlier in her life. Crazy, huh? Yeah. Oh, her brother Dan noticed how much she had improved with these regular gigs that she had been doing. So he's like, you know, I'm gonna help you get a recording contract, Eva. He knew a girl from their hometown who was dating Daniel Lenoise. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, the producer of YouTube, Bob Dylan, Emily Harris, and the Neville Brothers. And Daniel lived in New Orleans, so Dan and Chris, you know, I guess they hooked it up through her. Yeah. So they, Dan and Chris took Eva's demo tapes and hopped on a plane. But here's the key thing. They never reached New Orleans. There was a, a heavy snowstorm, and it grounded the flight in Chicago. And Dan still had those tapes to this very day. Oh, wow. In his possession. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, never happened. Never happened. Eva's presence continued to be requested on diverse recordings. R&B legend and local DC hero Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers recorded their seventh album, a collection of new songs in the summer of 1991. Now, I played you the songs that they did together. They did an album together. And people don't know Chuck Brown. He did a song called Bustin' Loose, uh, a 1979 hit song. And it spent four weeks at the top of the R&B charts. And Nelly, Nelly took part of that song for Hot in Here. That was the the backing of that, which is the sample of it. Um, people don't know this, but Bustin' Loose has been played after every home run for the Major League Baseball team, the Washington Nationals, since 2008 until the present. Wow. Yeah. With the exception of 2015 and 2016 seasons, when Jesse J's song Bang Bang was played after every home run. Oh, I love her. <laughs> and there's a street uh, in D.C. named after Chuck Brown, called the Chuck Brown Way. So Chris Biondo was the sound engineer on Chuck's new album, and at the end of a recording session, Chris and Chuck would stay on to discuss the day's work over a bottle of vodka in Chris's office. And Chuck wondered whether the new album should be like a jazz record. So talking about jazz, Chris said, I recently recorded a singer you might like. Uh, she's also into jazz, although she's not pigeonholed that easily. Her name is Eva Cassidy. Chuck had never heard of her before. So Chris put the tape in the deck and pressed play. Eva's version of the classic T-Bone Walker song, Stormy Monday, came through the speakers. And Chuck didn't say a word, but nodded approvingly. They listened in silence after the song played. In what part of D.C. does she live, is what Chuck said. Yeah. Chris told him she lived in Bowie. What is a black girl doing in Bowie? She's not black, Chuck. Chuck said, if this girl ain't black, then I ain't black either. <laughs> so Chuck resp- you know, Chuck said that he was dis- in disbelief. Chris said, I think it would be kind of cool to produce an album with you and Eva. And he said, I think it's important that you two meet each other. I'll arrange a meeting as soon as possible. A week later... After first hearing the tape, Brown came back to the studio 
and met a short, blonde, blue-eyed Eva. She recognized the famed godfather of Go-Go immediately. She knew he had been impressed by her vocals. And she said, hi, I'm Eva. And when she introduced herself, he thought, is this a fan or what? <laughs> and she said, no, I'm Eva Cassidy. You know, Chris played my tape for you. You're Chuck Brown. You know, I've heard so much about you. I know you. He couldn't believe it. And that would, they shook hands and began a musical relationship that would do wonders for her singing career. Mm. And they began working at Chris's studio every week, initially recording the duet You've Changed. And although they came from different backgrounds, they gelled. Both musicians were perfectionists. Chuck was not used to a fellow musician taking music so seriously. And they both enjoyed working in the studio. Chris was happy with the burgeoning relationship, musical relationship. Since all of his and uh, manager Al, De- Al, De- Al Dell's attempts to win a record deal had failed, largely due to Eva's stubborn nature, in meeting with record companies, she would keep quiet, piping up only to state her intentions. Don't make me sing that pop crap. She was not someone who easily could make concessions, but with Chuck, she made concessions. And they were just, they were just on the same plane. And I played you that song that, um, it wasn't You've Changed, but it was another song that was one of their hits. But yeah. were you shocked to hear her play such a bluesy, like, yeah, it was R&B? Yeah, I'd never heard that song before. It was good. I think it's on the Other Side album. Is it? Mm-hmm. Or uh, wait a minute, they did a, I'll, you know, I think it's, I, I think I have I it in it here. Is. Okay, then you, you're right. If you said it, it's not. So Chris and Eva became romantically involved in 1990, around the time that Chris left and found a new recording room in Glendale. I don't even know if that sounds right. Glenn and Dale, and then there's Al Dale. I wonder if I did that right. (laughs) I wonder if I did that right. So when Chris asked Eva to move in with him, she asked her mom for advice, and it was not until Barbara gave her approval that Eva took the plunge, and Chris and Eva lived like a perfectly normal couple, she found pleasure in the relatively large garden, and she helped him refurbish his house. She helped him with his marble design on his floors. She was very happy, and they were in love. She showered her love for Chris in a poem about miracles that she wrote for him, about the simple pleasures of life. Chris was patient and attentive, and he encouraged her during her moments of uncertainty. He was her biggest fan, and he found delight in her music and art. They enjoyed swimming and cycling and walking with Bernice, and renting movies. She wasn't a great cook, and most of the time they ate pizzas. Yay! <laughs> Hot dogs and tuna sandwiches. So you know what? It's great Sounds then that amazing. I ordered that I ordered pizza tonight. Right? It's the perfect yep. the perfect meal for Eva. I did not know that I was that was subliminal. She wore his jeans and shirts and a pair of work boots. They holidayed together in the Virgin Islands, a favorite favorite destination. Eva even summoned up the courage to sing at open mic nights. Uh, in a club called Barnacle Bill. During a visit to Florida, Chris stepped on a stingray on the beach and had an allergic reaction, dropping to the ground and fainting. Eva helped him walk to an emergency doctor, and she saved his life. Wow. So in the early 1990s, I know it's crazy, huh? Yeah. And especially she was playing in like a place called Barnacle Bills. I know. All the, it's so crazy. Like she never made mainstream. I know. But she was like putting her 10,000 hours. Yeah, yep. big time. You know? In the early 1990s, several of Eva's friends and family got married, and she was invited to perform at their weddings. Here's, this is cute. I don't even know how you're going to feel about this. 
You guys are married, right? Yet? Yeah. Okay. How would you feel if you invited Eva to perform to your wedding and she came and performed the Hank Williams song, Your Cheating Heart? Oh, boy. Oh, my God. I love it. It's, so it's kind of funny. That's genius. Yeah. At the wedding of her sister, Annette, she performed Hank Williams' standard, Your Cheating Heart. That's hilarious. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's genius. It's a little gangster. I love it. Yeah. That. How would you feel if she came to your wedding and performed... Simon and Garfunkel, we were talking about them. A bridge over troubled water. Genius. I love her. I mean, she did that at Ruth. Remember Celia and Ruth? Yeah. yeah. She did that at, at Ruth's wedding. <laughs> oh my God. That's comedic. Isn't that something? Yeah, yeah. Now, for little Celia's wedding, she sang Claire Hamill's You Take My Breath Away, Aww. which appeared on the surface to be a romantic song, but in reality, it was a song about God. Got it. Actually, I can understand that though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. song about God at a wedding—that's yeah, like that's much more. Tie, but your cheating heart would have been amazing. But I'd be like, damn, was she trying to tell me something? Yeah. <laughs> imagine that. You, yeah. ma- you imagine you invite your friend to sing a song because she got an amazing voice, yeah, and she maybe starts she singing. Knew something. Your cheating heart. She might have known something. Or a bridge over troubled water. She might have felt something was coming. That's a great song, though. I know, but song. damn, you ain't got to sing that at my <laughs> wedding. I'd be like, Eva, what you going to sing at my wedding? It better be some like, um, like the greatest a, love of yeah, all. Yeah. Some Pre-approval mess. on that song. Guys. I know, right? So the album, The Other Side, was released in 1992 under Chuck's label. So it was. It sold fairly well. Chris decided to book Chuck and the Eva Cassidy band for two performances at the Blues Alley in Woo-hoo. Georgetown. Yeah. Al convinced Eva to wear a dress on stage, and strangely enough, she was cool with that. Wow. She was fine wearing feminine clothing for being in the presence of Chuck Brown. And those in the audience got the impression that they were a real couple because their love duets sounded so convincing and heartfelt, as we heard from the recording tonight. And in reality, it was just a close friendship. They brought out the best in each other. You know, Eva began to feel comfortable with with or with with or without a guitar, and she was able to concentrate fully on her singing. So she was able to let go. Her stage fright never left her completely, but her performances with Chuck saw her worst fears subside. That's great. Together with Chuck, the Eva Eva Cassidy band attracted bigger audiences all over town, and in the beginning, they returned for the Godfather of Go Go. But soon, word got around about the blonde singer in his band. And the owner of the Blues Alley, Ralph Camilli, was so impressed by her abilities and promised Chris that they could come back sometime, as we will see from your we will see. albums. Yeah. So Chuck and Eva played at the Columbia Arts Festival in 1993 and opened for singing <laughs> soul legend preacher Al Green. That might have been on the list. That should have been on the list. Cause yeah. look, look at Josh. So that should have been on the list, Josh. <laughs> what if what if I said? F, marry, or kill for Al Green. Uh, when he was Al Green, like before right. the Grits episode. Uh, right. You know about the Grits yeah, episode, yeah. right? His girlfriend poured hot yeah, grits yeah. on him. Yeah, sure did. And, uh, and then she killed herself. Oh, God. Yeah. That's some, heavy, that's some heavy shit on a Saturday night. I know. Damn. What about it, Josh? See, you're torn. He's like a Marvin Gaye for you. I know. Dude, that's the thing. He's like, they're very kind of... Oh. I love Al Green. Yeah, I would have done it. I'm sorry. It's Al Green. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. I think of a Goodwill Hunting. How do you mend a broken heart? Oh, right. so good. 
Oof. So good. I think that that's a Bee Gees song. I think the Bee Gees wrote that. Did they? It, it, it sounds like it. I could hear that. I think you did. I could hear that. I don't know why I'm saying that, but I think so. So when they sung, they opened for Al Green at the Stone Soul Picnic, which drew 20,000 visitors wow. to, to Northeast Washington. At the Wolf Trap, they opened for the famous Neville Brothers. I saw the Neville Brothers at, well, the lead singer, Aaron Neville, at the New Orleans Jazz Festival this year. That's cool. Oh, you went this yeah, year? Yeah, oh, it was wow. awesome. Nice. It was awesome. Pitbull was amazing. Yeah. But so was uh, Galactic and um, Aaron Neville and Diana Ross. Yeah. Wow. Diana Ross was off the chain. So Al continued to send material to record labels, and Bruce Lundvall, this is important. Mm -hmm. So we ready for this? Yeah. Okay. Bruce Lundvall, head of the famous jazz label Blue Note, showed some interest. Al and Eva decided to travel by train to New York to meet with Lundvall, with Bruce. I'll call him Bruce. And in his office, she sang several songs with guitar accompaniment including Autumn Leaves and a stunning a cappella version of Amazing Grace. Bruce was so impressed by Eva and advised them to get a decent demo together to show what an Eva Cassidy album would look like, what in Bowdy are here. He even gave them a small budget since he really believed in the project. The next day, Eva recorded her four favorite songs, all very different, Wayfaring Stranger, which you probably know, mm-hmm. Oh, Had I a Golden Thread. Know it, yep. Blues in the Night. Yep. Nightbird. Yep. They sent the best versions to Bruce, and after listening to the tape, he still believed that Eva had what it took to become a success, but she, he felt like she needed to find a direction. So stylistically, her music was too diverse. She responded by saying that she liked to sing songs she loved and that all she knew was the difference between a good and a bad song. That's all she knew. She said, I don't want to be pigeonholed, Bruce. I just want to sing. And I certainly don't want to restrict myself to jazz. And he admired that about Eva's determination. But he said, I can't make a record under these conditions. So Apollo Records, a subsidiary branch of Motown Records in New York, had also grown interested in Eva to the point that its representatives traveled down to the studio in D.C. to hear her for themselves. They were also intrigued by her art since an Apollo employee also organized art exhibitions in the Big Apple. Eva brought some of her paintings to the, to the studio, and everything looked promising. Apollo gave Chris, Al, and Eva a check for a demo, and Eva took to recording again. Once the tape was done, Eva and Chris traveled back to New York to the luxurious Apollo offices on the top floor of the famous Apollo Theater. Crazy. I know on the 125th Street in Harlem. Apollo was keen and promised to show up with a contract, and soon after the record company was pronounced bankrupt. Wow, so close again. All these dead All these, heads. like, so close, so close. Nuts. Yeah. <clears throat> Can you imagine? So close to success. And most people would have just broken them. But she was, she was like, Kept going. Well, I didn't want to be there anyway, probably. Yeah. She didn't say that, but... I mean, Apollo would have been good for her because Motown Records signed Tina Marie. Yeah. I love Tina Marie. Tina Marie was amazing. We got to do a show on Tina Tina Marie. Marie. uh, She's so good. Like, Tina Marie is, like, literally one of my favorite singers of all time. Love her. Love her. Tina Marie. Damn. So during this period of back and forth with various interested parties, Eva was going through a serious gospel phase. 
She enjoyed going to Carter Barron Amphitheater in Washington, D.C. to see B.B. and C.C. Winans. You guys know who they are. Mm-hmm. You should know who they are. They sang at Whitney's oh, funeral. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know them well. Yeah. Chris joined her, and although he liked the uplifting character of the music, um, he just had a problem with, I guess, all, probably all the minister shit. But I shouldn't say it like that. Minister stuff. It's okay with me. Even <laughs> Eva would later record several gospel tracks directly influenced by this period in her life. I mean, that girl, she just kept moving. Yeah. You know, she kept creating. That's what's so amazing about her, Ryan and and Josh, is that it just like, she just kept singing. She just kept moving. Yeah. Small little baby steps ahead, but always just about the music. Mm -hmm. That's true. Mm. In 1990, November 1993, Eva and Chris received an invitation to the Whammies, the Washington Area Music Association Awards, and an annual awards ceremony held at the Hilton Hotel in Washington. Eva had a pottery class that same even, <laughs> evening, so she declined the invitation. Of course she did. Yes, she did. Several days later, Chris got a phone call from Mike, the president of Whamma. He strongly advised Chris to attend the ceremony with Eva. Although he didn't say why. Well, the reason for this soon became clear because when they attended, she won her first whammy for best female vocalist. And when she came forward to accept the prize, Al and Chris stood up and cheered. But the rest of the audience didn't even know who the heck she was. Like, who is that? They're like two people, like, clapping fiercely. Um, she was baffled. She was baffled along with the audience. <laughs> and she hesitated for a moment before saying, thank you, God. And I'd like to thank my mom and dad and my manager, Al, Chris, and Chuck. Thank you very much. And after the ceremony, a local reporter asked her to comment on her success. And she said, this is exciting. I feel like I'm allowed into the club of Washington musicians now. She's a very humble, humble person. So while the Pieces of a Dream album was a great opportunity for Eva, solo success still proved elusive. And the other members of the Eva Cassidy band were bitterly disappointed with development. So here's the deal. Keith Grimes, the bandmate, was kind of mad that Blue Note wouldn't do an album with her. Mm-hmm. You know, and he just felt like, he said it was like comparing it to Decca Records passing on the Beatles, which they did. Right. And years later, um, Blue Note changed their minds and contracted another female singer with a wide-ranging repertoire who was like Baby Eva, uh-huh. And her name was Nora Jones. Oh, wow. Nora Jones would become the biggest selling Blue Notes artist ever. And what's more, Nora Jones saved Blue Note. But Blue Note could have been saved with Eva. Because Eva was in the same position of Nora. And Bruce regretted that decision until the day he died in 2015. Wow. He would admit it in TV interviews, even after she died. He would say that was the biggest mistake of my life not signing Eva Cassidy mm-hmm. and I'll bring up more of that later but Eva and the Eva Cassidy band returned to doing live shows and when they did they discovered that thanks to the recent recording work Eva's singing had in- continued to improve she didn't need gimmicks or special lighting she would just transform a room with her voice she was also a powerful arranger and she removed everything that overpowered the song only retaining the essential core of it. You know, it's funny because Mr. Rogers, you're talking about him, one of his favorite lines was from uh, 
little prints, I think. But what is essential is truly invisible. And I think that's what her yeah. vocal work did for people. It's invisible because we talked about, you know, goosebumps and stuff. Yep. In 1994, for a second time, Eva was invited back to the whammy ceremony. This time, Mike, the president, asked her to sing. He gave her the choice to perform with or without the Eva band, the Eva Cassidy band. So here's, here's where it gets good. She decided to do solo versions of Time After Time and Over the Rainbow, mm. which she had now perfected mm. arrangement-wise. Mike was concerned. He was like, uh, it's a big hall, and the crowd will be noisy. Are you sure you want to pick those types of songs? Because they're slow, they're deliberate, you know what I mean? She was like, sure, I do. Yeah, I do. I'm going to do it. So after she finished time after time and started to sing Over the Rainbow, there was a murmur of laughter in the audience. And one audience member was heard to say, don't tell me that this girl's going to try and do a sentimental song from The Wizard of Oz in this place. But she persevered. And she sang convincingly with a lot of presence of Eva Cassidy could do. And the room settled down, absorbed, and when the last note faded, there was a complete silence for a few seconds before they erupted in prolonged applause. Hmm. That would just—I can just imagine what that moment must have been like, and it just chills, you know. I know, <clears throat> especially when you hear somebody say something out loud. Right. When yeah. you totally turn an audience or a room. Isn't that to amazing? Your side. That's such. It's a moment of like power that I don't Damn. know. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to listen to the songs that were mentioned in the series, you can go to a curated playlist of the artists and Spotify under Rockabye's playlist. Please subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. One additional note, the information in the episodes are based on my best research. I'm your host, Melissa. Always remember, you're a shining star no matter who you are. Mm -hmm.